Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. This series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this episode, we will be discussing the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in the largest naval battle in history, the Battle of Leyte Gulf in the Philippines in 1944. To discuss this important aspect of our naval history, I'm joined by Rear Admiral Alan Dutois on the line from Tasmania. Alan is a member of the Naval Studies Group. Dr Carl James, who is head of the Military History Section at the Australian War Memorial. Vice Admiral Peter Jones, who is also a member of the Naval Studies Group. Commander Greg Swindon, who has written a number of books on the service of the RAN in both world wars, and Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, who served in HMAS Shropshire during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, Alan Dutois, can you tell us a little about the opposing forces arrayed for the battle? Certainly, from uh, a Japanese perspective, they're expecting that uh, it would be the last opportunity for a general decisive battle uh, before US naval forces reach the Japanese mainland. So from an Allied perspective, we're certainly expecting that it was going to be an intense operation. And significantly in June, during the Battle of the Philippine Sea, as we've already heard, the Japanese had lost three aircraft carriers, but probably more significantly, they'd lost 430 carrier-borne aircraft and some 200 land-based aircraft. And this, this was a huge loss for the Japanese. So at this stage, the Japanese were down to four naval task forces. One of these with three aircraft carriers was back in home waters while it was waiting a replacement aircraft, and the other three were committed to operations in the Philippines. Two formations uh, were located out to the southwest in Brunei, and the third would be coming from Formosa or modern-day Taiwan. The southern formations were Vice Admiral Takeo Kurito and his powerful Central Force. Uh, this consisted of five battleships, including the 18-inch Yamato and the Musashi, 12 cruisers and 15 destroyers. Now, the second formation in the south was Vice Admiral Shoji Nishimura's southern force, consisting of two battleships, a heavy cruiser and four destroyers and we'll hear a bit more about them later. In the north, Vice Admiral Ozawa commanded the Northern Force. This consisted of four aircraft carriers and two battleships, which had been modified with small flight decks to enable them to conduct flight operations. But importantly, Ozawa's force, because of the losses of aircraft recently, was not fully complemented with aircraft. These three formations would converge on the Philippines and would give battle. And at this stage, it's also probably worth just talking about, from the Australian perspective at Leyte Gulf, uh, what our forces were. And I might just add that this was the biggest single RAN operation ever undertaken. So amongst the vast invasion fleets were the cruisers Australia and Shropshire, the destroyers Arunta and Waramanga, the three landing ships Canimbala, Manura and Australia, which had recently been converted to that role. And acting as survey vessels were the, the frigate Gascoigne and the small motor launch 
HTML 1074. Any later phases of the Philippines campaign as we step through would also involve the sloop Borrego and the Corvette Benalla. Well, Greg Swindon, who are the main US naval commanders in charge of the Allied forces? Well, the main US commander was Admiral uh, William Bull Halsey, uh, Bull by name and nature, uh, and uh, he commanded the third uh, US fleet, which was reporting back to Admiral Nimitz in Hawaii. Uh, Halsey was in his early 60s, an Annapolis graduate, had served in World War I uh, in destroyers, but during the 1930s he had qualified as a naval aviator, and uh, he was basically in command of the, uh, the carriers, uh, that took part in this activity. Supporting him was Vice Admiral Mitcher uh, in uh, Task Force 38, uh, who operated the fast carriers and the modern battleships. Again, he was a naval aviator as well, uh, but also in his early 60s. Those two, well, Mitcher reported to Halsey, Halsey reported to Nimitz. In the Seventh Fleet, we had Admiral uh, Thomas Kincaid, uh, and he reported directly to General Douglas MacArthur. And uh, his force uh, comprised the amphibious uh, forces to land, uh, which, as Alan's mentioned, included the Australian ships Manura, Canimbla and Westralia. Uh, supporting him was uh, Vice Admiral Clifton Sprague, who was a naval aviator. He uh, controlled a number of the escort carriers that were involved, uh, and they would provide close air support to the American troops once they'd landed. And also uh, reporting to Kincaid was Vice Admiral Jesse Oldendorf, and uh, he had a force of six older battleships, uh, which provided the bombardment or naval gunfire support uh, for the troops once they were ashore. The problem that uh, may be alluded to here was that uh, Halsey reported to Nimitz, and uh, the other guys in uh, uh, the 7th Fleet reported to uh, MacArthur. So there was no unity of command, and uh, I'm sure that will be explained a little bit later when some of the issues that occurred during the Battle of Leyte Gulf and later in Langaya Gulf occurred. So, Peter Jones, we've heard a little about the US naval commanders. Who was the Australian naval commander? So the Australian commander was probably the most famous RAN officer at, at the time, uh, the newly promoted Commodore John Collins. He was a member of the first class to enter the Royal Australian Naval College um, in 1913. And early in the war, he commanded HMAS Sydney in the Mediterranean to, um, to great acclaim and uh, took part in the Battle of Cape Sparta. Uh, this action was discussed in an earlier podcast that uh, uh, we've done in this series. Um, Collins was, uh, had most recently commissioned uh, HMAS Shropshire, which is going to take part in the Battle of Laodic Gulf. Um, and he'd taken part in some of the early uh, landings in New Guinea. Uh, he relieved the British Admiral uh, Sir Victor Crutchley in command of the squadron to become the first REN officer to actually command the Australian squadron. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning that Collins' appointment was part of a larger scheme. Um, in February 1944, the Australian War Cabinet had determined not only that John Collins' appointment uh, in command of the squadron but also had a plan that he would, once his time in the squadron uh, came to an end, that he would replace Admiral Sagai Royal as the professional head of the Australian Navy. Um, and at that time, the Australian Navy was the only one of the three services still commanded by a British officer. Um, the government had also decided that Collins's classmate, Harold Farncombe, would in due course relieve Collins in command of the squadron 
And in the meantime, they decided that um, it was important for, for Farncombe to get experience with uh, aircraft carriers, which was seen as the future uh, for the Australian Navy. And so he was seconded to the Royal Navy to, uh, to command an aircraft carrier, and that was turned out to be HMS Attacker in the Mediterranean. Well, Carl James, as we've heard by the orders of battle arrayed for the for the uh, f- for the uh, amphibious landings, it was it was a massive a massive undertaking, but it involved a number of distinct actions, not all of which involved the RAN. Can you talk us through briefly the overall US plan? Yeah, I think massive is a great word because if you look, even just Google the term uh, Lingay and Gulf in terms of battles, it is often described as the greatest naval battle in modern history. Uh, and as we heard from Alan's description, we had hundreds of vessels to take part of all different types, probably thousands of different types of carrier-borne aircraft and um, easily hundreds of thousands of naval personnel. So this was a huge action. Now, the battle itself lasted for several days during the third week of October and consisted of four major separate engagements. The Battle of the Subian Sea, the Battle of Suriago Strait, uh, the Battle of Cape Ingario and the Battle of Samar. Now, the Battle of Leyte Gulf is notable too uh, because for the first time the Japanese employed aircraft in organised suicide or kamikaze attacks against Allied shipping. Now, these new special attack units were formed to support the Japanese plans for a decisive battle for the Philippines. The name kamikaze meant divine wind and came from a well-known episode in medieval Japanese history when the god sent a typhoon to destroy an armada assembled by the Mongol emperor, Emperor Kublai Khan and to protect Japan. Now, legends aside, in 1944, the American attention was to clear Leyte and southern Samar, primarily to serve as a springboard for further operations into the Philippines by ground and air forces, and to clear, and to clear the very sea straits uh, to facilitate more easily naval movement. Generally, US sta- the United States naval forces approached the Philippines from two different directions. Vice Admiral Thomas Kincaid's 7th Fleet, provide the amphibious force and the close naval support for the invasion. And they sailed from Humboldt Bay in Hollandia and the Dutch New Guinea, as well as Sealander uh, Harbour in Manus Island. The invasion force, which also included the Australian squadron, sailed roughly northwest to approach the Philippines from the east, and it took a seven-day voyage to cover to 2,000 kilometres. Now, as well as the um, Kincaid's fleet, um, as the Allied invasion fleet sailed for the or the Philippines, able seaman Reg Walker, for example, and he was aboard HMAS Australia. And he recalled, and I, he recalled, and I quote, that as far as you could see, the horizon was full of vessels. Now, in addition to Kincaid's um, amphibious force, Admiral Horsley's powerful third fleet would approach the Philippines from the north, and Horsley's force was to provide a more distant air cover and for support of the operation. So, Greg Swindon, how did the Japanese plan to counter the Allied forces and the plan arrayed against them? Well, the Japanese had a number of uh, plans uh, named Shogo, Shogo 1, Shogo 2, etc. And they were uh, devised to um, deal with a number of options that were going to occur. You know, one of them was potential US attack on Formosa, another a potential attack on uh, the Philippines. Uh, Shogo 1 was their plan for uh, the Philippines. And this, uh, has, as been alluded to, would involve three uh, distinct uh, forces uh, coming to 
counterattack the Americans. Uh, one coming from the north, from Formosa, which was actually a decoy attack, and two coming from the south, from Brunei, uh, which would be split into two. Uh, one going through the San Bernardino Strait and uh, one going through Surigao Strait. Uh, so their plan was to lure as much of the American fleet away uh, from the Philippines to the north uh, and then use the two southern fleets to attack the American forces, particularly trying to get to the transports with the troops on board and destroy that. Uh, of course, the Japanese were somewhat fixated on uh, the, the decisive battle uh, which is if we can uh, meet the enemy at sea and destroy them, then we will have won, as opposed to a decisive campaign, which was a long-term attrition activity, which the Americans were certainly following. Alan Dutrois, on the 21st of October, the amphibious landings then took place. Can you talk us through the organisation and the elements of the amphibious landings and the roles that the, the different units, the cruisers and destroyers and the landing ships took in those landings? Well, the forces were divided into three key areas, which was advanced forces, attacking forces, and covering forces. The role of the advanced forces was to undertake minesweeping operations and channel marking of the swept areas, hydrographic surveying ahead of the amphibious assaults, and finally beach surveys and reconnaissance, as well as the preparation of the beaches for the assault. The attacking forces consisted of the assault convoys carrying the Marines and soldiers, their fuel, stores and equipment, and the attacking forces were charged with the seizure and the occupation of the Philippines Islands. And finally, the covering forces were there to protect advance and attack forces and to provide heavy shore bombardment and gunfire support. And this was the role of the battleships, the cruisers and the destroyers. Actually, on the day itself, uh, in Leyte Gulf, preparations for the arrival of the invasion fleet had commenced on the 17th of October, and this was a minesweeping effort to locate and sweep the minefields and any approaches to the invasion beaches. The bombardment of Leyte Island commenced at dawn on the 20th of October, and it involved the Australian cruisers and destroyers. The first wave of landing craft from the assault convoy, which included Manura and Australia hit the beach at about 0900 in the morning uh, of, of the day. And at the same time, the heavy air cover kept the Japanese uh, aircraft at bay. And that afternoon, General MacArthur waited ashore at Red Beach and made his brief but uh, famous speech, people of the Philippines, I have returned. So Greg Allen's described for us the overall scheme of how units were going to be employed. Can you tell us a little about the particular work of the units, uh, such as Gascoigne and Warrigo and, and Harbour Defence Motor Lord uh, 1074 in the operation? Yeah. Uh, at Leyte Gulf, Gascoigne and uh, HDML uh, 1074 were present. Uh, Warrigo came in later for the Lingayen Gulf activities. Uh, but those two Australian vessels were part of the minesweeping and hydrographic group. Uh, the Philippines was... Uh, an area that was under-chartered, uh, as in uh, 
the people who were going to do their tax were not sure uh, what uh, reefs or uh, rock outcrops would be in the areas where the landings were going to take place. Uh, they were also uncertain as to how many mines, if any, the Japanese may have laid. So the unsung work of the smaller vessels such as Gascoigne and, and 1074 was vital in going in uh, before the landings occurred to, to search for mines, search for uh, coral outcrops and rocks that may impede the landing craft. So they had to go in, clear the channels, lay channel markers so that uh, when the American troops were going ashore in landing craft, which had come from the various landing ship infantry, that they weren't going to run up onto a rock uh, that hadn't been found or they weren't going to stray into a minefield that hadn't been located. Uh, so these vessels went in before the attack uh, and so uh, there was some uh, Japanese resistance and uh, uh, Gascoigne recorded that uh, during her period in October uh, doing her um, uh, mine sweeping and hydrographic work that uh, there were 39 air attacks in the vicinity of the ship. Uh, 30 Japanese aircraft were shot down uh, which could be seen from Gascoigne. Uh, four bombs fell within 100 yards of the ship uh, and uh, whilst they suffered no damage, one one of the crew was wounded. Uh, but they continued on with their vital task of basically uh, surveying the area, clearing it of mines, uh, checking for obstructions so that the landing craft could get to the beach. So Guy Griffiths, can you tell us something of the captain of HMAS Shropshire and the ship's company? Captain Nichols is really uh, dominant in the minds of the ship's company of um, Shropshire. He was in command from 18 September 44 to the 14th of April 46. So um, he had 18 months in command for which he appeared to be very grateful and happy. He entered the Royal Navy in 1916, and so he had a couple of years as a junior officer at sea in World War One. He went on, and then he qualified as a navigator uh, in 1924, and then he, they had him in two levels at that stage, and then he did a, what they called a first-class ships navigation course in 1927. I think that enabled him to navigate the larger ships like the battle cruisers and the battleships. Um, he then served between the wars in destroyers, cruisers. In 1932, he was in the navigator of the battleship Rodney. In uh, 1934, he was in the Royal Yacht, which in those days was the Victoria and Albert. He was a commander. He was a navigator. In 1938, he was in the Galatea, the light cruiser. And in 1940, he was in the Mediterranean. So he started to get his battle experience in those days. 42, uh, he was on the staff and admiralty for a while, and then, of course, he joined Shropshire in 44 and stayed with us until the end of it. Godfrey Nichols, one would describe as, he was a very pleasant personality. He was conservative, but he relied and trusted all hands to do their duty. He kept the ship's company up to date on future events with sound warnings on the capabilities of the enemy. He acknowledged the battle experience of the ship's company and he quietly led us all through the heavy opposition at the landing of Leyte on 20th September 44 
hand at the surface battle of Surigao Strait on the 25th at month. And then in January 45, he continued to lead us through the landing in Lingayen Gulf. He was very highly respected by all hands on board, and he was well remembered by everybody. And um, he made the following comments on leaving the ship, amongst others. One comment was, on assuming command, I found very quickly that, thanks to my predecessors, I was blessed with a compliment that any captain would be proud and fortunate to command. And those are <clears throat> very nice words uh, to remember him by. Uh, many of the ship's company uh, kept in contact with, with him when he returned to retire in England, and for years during his retirement, they also, those who traveled overseas, visited him. Um, our gunnery officer, Lieutenant Commander Brace Girdle, was virtually the Australian representative at his funeral when he passed away in June 1986 at the age of 87. So that's a little summary of a, of a great captain. Well, Guy, as, as we've noted, you served in Shropshire during the Leyte Gulf. Can you tell us a, a little about your role? during the battle? Well, uh, Lady Gulf, um, for me, opened um, during the approach to Lady Gulf. Oh, Shropshire was in the bombardment force. And uh, we managed to catch a, a mine in our port caravan. Um, caravan uh, I, as we approached, that was on the 20th of October. So, I was a um, forecastle officer in those days, and uh, I had the um, interesting job, uh, carefully supervised, of course, by the bosun. I was only a lieutenant in those days, lack of a, a lot of experience. But anyway, we were moving paravanes, uh, trying to encourage the mine to disengage, and this eventually happened, and it floated astern and was destroyed by somebody astern of us. So that was what one might call the opening phase to Lady Gulf. Uh, in those days, um, my action station was in the air defence position on the port side and also as an officer watch on the bridge. So um, as an air defence officer, you were encouraging lookouts and, in fact, encouraging everybody on the upper deck to keep a very alert eye in the sky to ensure that we were able to detect the attackers and engage them before they got too close. And that really was uh, a routine during the, um, the landing days, 21 through to 25. Peter Jones, as Carl has mentioned, the Japanese uh, intended to use suicide aircraft or uh, kamikaze. How did this tactic fare? Yes, yeah, so I, I guess the first point to make is that, uh, as been, has been described, is that uh, the Japanese had suffered a large number of uh, aircraft and pilots lost, um, and uh, really from Battle of Midway on. Um, and Japan didn't have the training pipeline to, uh, to refresh the... Um, the Air Force and the Navy with sufficiently trained pilots. So this was 
if you like, a bit of a desperation measure. Um, perhaps if we just focus on um, on the first kamikaze uh, hit, which was actually on uh, HMAS Australia, um, to give an example of the effect. Um, so this took place, uh, in fact, on the 135th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar, the 21st of October 1944. So the ship was in Leyte Gulf, um, and the... And the the ships had been in the Gulf for about 24 hours. Uh, Shropshire's radar detected a few aircraft coming from the west. Uh, they were quickly reported to all ships on, on radio to prepare for the attack. Um, so this was about 6am uh, early morning. Um, Shropshire opened fire on a dive bomber that passed close astern of her, passed down the starboard side and only about 15 metres off the sea. Um, so quite low down, um, hit several times by, by gun crews, but it kept uh, coming. It appeared to clear to the west and then wheeled around and then aimed itself towards the Australia, coming up her stern. Um, the aircraft was hit a couple of times, um, but the uh, pilot continued on and deliberately struck Australia's bridge and foremast. Um, this started a major fire. Um, and um, and on the bridge and the gun gun director that was all enveloped by uh, by f- fire and uh, and so people suffered both fire and blast um, injuries um, and among the casualties were Commodore Collins uh, captain of the Australia uh, Captain Emil Deshano um, and uh, and the the fire was quickly. Uh, Put out um, and the casualties removed. Um, the Shano had serious stomach wounds and burns, and he um, he died later in the day. Um, Commodore Collins was lucky to survive, uh, but he was seriously burnt, had a broken back and ribs, an eye injury, a punctured lung, concussion, and various other wounds. Um, Thirty um, officers and sailors were killed, and sixty-four injured. Um, in fact, after that attack, um, Admiral Kincaid, the uh, Com Seven Fleet, he actually he was in his flagship not far from Australia. He got in a boat um, with his with the with the fleet doctor, went across, went on board Australia, went through the ship um, to see firsthand the damage, and found um, Collins propped up on the deck in in the wardroom, in in considerable discomfort. Um, but that's, if you like, the pattern. Um, King K quickly decided that um, uh, Australia was in no fit state to continue on, and uh, she and the earlier torpedoed cruiser Honolulu were escorted to, to Manus. Um, the Commodore staff was transferred to Shropshire, and, um, and Cap- Captain Nichols, the CEO, became the acting Task Force Commander of Task Force 74. Um, it's probably worth pointing out that there's debate about whether Australia was the first victim of a kamikaze. Uh, that vowel that attacked Australia was from the 6th Flying Brigade of the Imperial Japanese Army Air Force and, and did not come from the specifically formed um, um, Japanese Navy Special Attack Unit. Um, and um, and so it could have been on the, the initiative of that pilot to... To a, a suicide attack. In any case, that was irrelevant to um, those on board the um, on board the Australia. The tactic had both a material and a psychological effect um, in terms of um, um, 
damage to ships. And and in the battle, uh, there was uh, seven aircraft carriers were hit, as well as 40 other ships. Five were sunk, 23 heavily damaged, and 12 moderately damaged. Guy Griffiths, how... Talking about the, this new method of attack, the kamikaze attack, how did the ship's companies react to this new method? Well, it's a long time uh, <laughs> ago to remember, but uh, as far as I can uh, recall, I, it was firstly, I think we were all very surprised at the fact that the pilot was crashing his aircraft. It was a suicide mission. And um, we were surprised. And then, of course, it was assessed as uh, a quite a quite a threat for this fellow steering the bomb, so to speak, directly at ships. The reaction of the ship's company was that nobody was going to run away from this. In fact, there was a great determination to counter these attacks. There's what you might say, there's a lot of guts, spirit, discipline, uh, teamwork in gunners' crews. Uh, there was increased elect, uh, alertness by all lookouts. In fact, everybody and guns crews on the upper deck and anybody else, everybody was mad keen to detect, sight uh, the uh, incoming attacker so we get our guns to bear on it and uh, hopefully deter from trying to hit structure. So that's... That was their reaction, a great determination to resist and to destroy the attacker. So, Carl James, perhaps the critical phase of the Battle of Leyte Gulf was the Japanese response to the landings, and this resulted in, in three battles, one in the Sibuyan Sea, another in the Sirigao Strait, and a third at San Bernardino Strait. Can you set the scene for us and briefly covered what happened in the Sibuyan Sea? Yeah, I... I'll try to do it briefly. It's actually a fairly hard thing to do without looking at a map <laughs> because these are all fairly complicated. So the Battle of Subian Sea occurred on the 24th of October as Vice Admiral uh, Kagari's powerful central force, central force, so that's a force consisting of battleships, cruisers, both heavy and light cruisers and destroyers, were trying to pass their way through the Subian Sea. Now this is a small sea that actually separates the Visayas from the northern Philippine island of Luzon. So uh, the Central Force was trying to make, and the plan for the Central Force was really to sail from, um, or via the Tablas Straits on the western side of the Philippine archipelago, through the Subian Sea, pass through the San Bernardino Strait into the Philippine Sea, so on the eastern side of the Philippine archipelago, then turn south to attack the Americans uh, and the invasion area around Leyte Gulf. So again, it's pretty hard if you're not looking at a map to follow. So on the 24th of October, as the Central Force is making its way, basically in the middle, trying to cut across the Philippine archipelago, uh, they came under repeated attacks from American, American carry-borne Curtis Helldiver dive bombers and Grumman TBF Adventure torpedo bombers. Now, in all, these American aircraft conducted 259 sorties against the Japanese fleet, and much of this effort was conducted against the battleship Yam- uh, Mashito, which was sunk, and then the heavy cruiser Mayoko, which was crippled. Now, this all wasn't one way, though. So the US task groups also came under repeated attacks from land-based Japanese aircraft. Most Japanese aircraft were destroyed, but the light carrier USS Princeton was hit by an armoured-piercing bomb, which then caused a fire and then subsequently a massive explosion on board, uh, and Princeton had to be scuttled later that day. And several other American ships, including the light cruiser USS Birmingham, was also damaged. 
Alan, can you describe for us the Battle of the Surigao Strait and the RAN's role in it? Well, four days after Australia's damage, uh, both Shropshire and Arunta took part in the last battleship action of the war, and I might add, indeed, in history. On the 22nd of October, the Japanese Central and Southern Forces, which had sailed from Brunei, uh, shaped their course to pass through the Surigao Strait in an attempt to destroy the invasion fleet. On the evening of the 24th of October, Altendorf deployed his forces so that the destroyer flotillas would be able to successfully attack from the flanks as the Japanese force proceeded through the strait. And among those destroyers was a Runta, which would lead one division into attack. At the northern end of the strait, steaming across Nishimura's path, would be eight cruisers, including Shropshire, followed by six battleships. Meanwhile, in glassy seas, the Japanese force steamed through the night at 20 knots, and for them there was no turning back. In the early hours of the 25th of October, Allied forces encountered the Imperial Japanese force of two battleships, a cruiser, and their four escorts as they headed north through the strait. Although Arantas torpedoes found no targets, uh, those in her force did. Uh, Shropshire fired 32 eight-gun broadsides of 18 shell into the battleships uh, Yashimiro with, within 14 minutes, scoring deadly hits and, in fact, contributing to the Yamashiro's destruction along with Nishimura, who was a battle of the Battle of Java Sea, who went down with his flagship. The Japanese lost both battleships in the encounter and two of their four destroyers. The battleship Fuzo capsized with only 10 survivors out of 1,900 men. And the battered Mogami, which had been part of the force which had sunk Perth at the Battle of Sunda Strait, retired from the encounter, but only to be sunk by an aircraft, uh, from an aircraft carrier uh, the next day. Guy, you, you had a different role during the Battle of Surigao Strait. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Surigao Strait was uh, a very interesting um, build-up, uh, getting the force together. Uh, I was the uh, rate officer in 80s control. The control officer was actually Lieutenant John Austin, who's a termite of mine, very good friends. Uh, he was the control officer of the 8-inch armament, and I was known as the rate officer. And the rate officer's responsibility was to watch the fall of shot as it uh, sped away and um, estimate whether it was in line with the target, left or right. And if a correction was necessary, then you had to give it before the next salvos went off, broadsides went off. And um, fortunately, in Surigao Strait, there was no line corrections were necessary. We fired 32 broadsides between 0356 and 0409 and a half minutes. So wow. <laughs> we managed to send off uh, 214 eight inch shells. It would have been more if the uh, after turret X and Y hadn't been uh, uh, 
out of the uh, business when my ship was turning and the, the uh, targets were ahead. So um, we estimated that our shots uh, were all falling very much in the vicinity. In fact, we climbed it. Um, one wasn't down there to see, but uh, we claimed hits from the direction and the timing. And um, so we have always had a very positive feeling that we contributed to the sinking of the enemy flagship Yamashiro battleship. And um, she, uh, after we've ceased fire, uh, she turned away southward, but she sank at uh, ten minutes later, uh, just after quarter past four zero four one nine. So one of the lasting memories of uh, that uh, action, besides the noise and uh, so on, was the incredible sight of tracer shells from six battleships, eight cruisers, and some twenty destroyers all firing at this Japanese column of ships coming up Surigao Strait. So it was a very colorful evening in its fact. Well, colorful for us, not so much for the enemy. And, and we in Shropshire, had, we fired full flash cordite. So each, each broadside sort of uh, showed the enemy exactly where we were. They made, took advantage of that couple of times and some of their firing the shells went overhead uh, but um, no damage was done no, none exploded to cause any damage in the ship so it was a busy night or busy morning watch and uh, one we all remember vividly uh, and guy a quick follow-up on that uh, talking about the Yamashiro Do, from your position as right officer there, did you see any of the impacts or the fall of shot uh, on or around Yamashiro? Oh, you could see, uh, yes, there were, surely, because of, that was the um, the uh, point of impact of a lot of ships, you know, the cruisers and the battleships and so on, we're all firing basically at the Yamashiro or the ship astern, the Fuso, which exploded and sank later. But, but uh, uh, yeah, we could see all the shots falling uh, and the explosions around the ship. Yes, certainly. But by timing, our uh, fall of shot uh, down in the control uh, position, um, we estimated that now of ours are falling and the explosions. So we assume, you can only assume, but you work out that. Those were ours. And so, Guy, you've told us a little bit about uh, about Shropshire and your role uh, at the Battle of Surigao Strait. Did you have any other impressions on that battle? Well, yes. I mean, the, the impressions that you get from the Surigao Strait are indelible and will remain so in history because you had a, an enemy force which was inferior in numbers coming up a narrow strait from the south of uh, Lady Gulf, endeavoring to reach Lady Gulf and uh, disrupt and destroy the landing. But uh, <clears throat> the Admiral 
in the um, at Shiro, which was the flagship. But coming through the strait uh, with his ships in line ahead, uh, he couldn't maneuver uh, to get the full power of what guns he had. But it was an inferior force in numbers against what I've just said, uh, six battleships, eight cruisers, and some 20 destroyers. In addition to that, there were a vast number of PT boats, fast PT boats, and uh, so the PT boats and uh, the destroyers all carried out torpedo attacks. And uh, there was nowhere that the Japanese could escape from this uh, amount, great amount of fire. So it allowed also their approach up the strait, allowed the defending battleships and cruisers I've just mentioned, enabled them to form a T, time on a crossing the T, which goes back a long way in naval uh, history. In fact, it was executed by the Japanese against the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War at the beginning of the century, and uh, much and enabled them to destroy the Russian fleet. So they were faced with uh, uh, an enemy us uh, across the sea, which gave us uh, the full power of all our firepower and each ship to concentrate on this line of ships coming up. So they were at a great tactical disadvantage, and uh, that led to their destruction. Well, Greg Swinnerton, although the Battle of San Bernardino Strait did not involve the Aryan, for completeness, can you briefly outline what happened there? Yeah, this is an interesting uh, action. Uh, often called the Battle of San Bernardino Strait, but also often referred to as the uh, the action off Samar, the island of Samar. So it's the same action, although sometimes referred to in different books as uh, two different ones. Uh, Admiral Carita, who was, uh, had sorted his... Uh, forces from Brunei, consisting of uh, four battleships, eight cruisers and 11 destroyers, uh, headed towards the San Bernardino Strait. Halsey, who was operating uh, to the west, oh, sorry, to the east of the strait, uh, had been lured northwards by the uh, decoy force coming from the north, which basically left the San Bernardino Strait completely unprotected. Uh, and so the Japanese force was able to pass through that strait uh, with virtual impunity. Uh, they arrived off Seymour and uh, encountered uh, Clifton Sprague's uh, task force uh, 77.4.3, often known as Taffy 3, uh, which consisted of a number of escort carriers and uh, light cruisers and destroyers and destroyer escorts. Uh, obviously, they had come up against a very large Japanese force, and the Japanese uh, commenced attacking, uh, particularly the escort carriers, uh, to destroy those. Uh, in the action, uh, two of the American escort carriers were uh, destroyed, and a number of the smaller uh, escort vessels. But the Americans uh, attacked with such uh, 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 gusto. Uh, uh, ferocity that the uh, Japanese thought they were up against a much larger force, not knowing that it was quietly, uh, quite lightly uh, defended. And Karita, in the uh, end, decided to break off the action uh, and uh, take his force away, almost at the point where they had achieved victory. 
uh, and it was only due to the uh, the heavy defence conducted by the American light forces and from the aircraft coming from the uh, the escort carriers that had not yet been destroyed that forced the Japanese to break off that attack. Well, Carl James, with these three incredible mammoth engagements going on at sea, what's going on ashore? Well, that's right. You know, the ground fighting for Leyte Island was no less bitter or intense than those moments that were experienced at sea. Now, I'm sure we've all seen the iconic photograph of General Douglas MacArthur and the President of the Philippines, uh, Sergio Osmena, waiting ashore on Red Beach on the, at Leyte on the 20th of October. People of the Philippines, MacArthur declared, I have returned. Now, MacArthur had indeed honoured his pledge from two and a half years earlier to return, but the liberation of the Philippines had really only just begun. And what followed was a brutal campaign by the US, US 6th Army, aided by Filipino guerrilla forces, to clear Leyte Island of the Japanese. On the 26th of December, so Boxing Day, MacArthur announced that the campaign now can be regarded as close as closed except for mining up operations. Um, sorry, mine up, mopping up operations. Yet the fighting in Leyte would continue f- um, by the newly formed US 8th Army and continued until May of 1945. During this time, more than 3,500 American soldiers and airmen died during the campaign, and the Filipino losses were also very high, while over 80,000 Japanese died in Leyte. Now, while I've understandably been focusing on the efforts and sacrifice of the Royal Australian Navy, I think it's worth noting too that No. 6 Wireless Unit, RAAF, deployed to Leyte, and these were dubbed the Foreign Legion, and these highly skilled Australian wireless operators intercepted and decoded Japanese signals. And several Australian Army officers also fought in Leyte, and they were attached as observers to the American ground forces. Right, at this point, with MacArthur now ashore, but we have a lot of mopping up still to carry on through the Philippines, we'll end this podcast, and in the next episode, we'll continue this story, talking about the Battle of Lingayen Gulf. But before we conclude, could I ask each of you for your final thoughts? Carl. Well, in this instance, I think the final words and thoughts should really be from the men who were there. So later reflecting on the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the then Vice Admiral Sir John Collins said that Australians should be proud that the REN had made a small but active part in the victory. Now, able seaman David uh, Mitski was also very well much aware of the significance of his own personal efforts, and he later wrote, and I quote, Well, here we are in Shropshire, Fulfilling a prophecy, a promise, and creating history. The loneliest seaman can say to his grandchildren with pride, I helped take MacArthur back. Guy Griffiths, any final thoughts on the Battle of Leyte Gulf? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, really, it was uh, Shropshire's first. We, we'd done a number of landings for the uh, American forces coming through in the New Guinea coast. Uh, from the end of 43 right through until we were at Leyte in 44. Um, but uh, Leyte was where the action hotted up uh, from the air attack point of view. Uh, the troops got ashore uh, uh, safely. It was Shropshire's first initiation into the big league and... Um, we, we, we acquitted ourselves well. Alan Dessois. I think my final point is that although the Allies enjoyed overwhelming 
numerical superiority during the campaign. It was the combination of technological and professional mastery, which had been achieved since the war began, that ultimately made the victory decisive. You know, for example, Surigao Strait was fought by the Allies largely under radar control. And the final point I'd make is that after October 1944, the Imperial Japanese Navy ceased to represent a major threat. And in tandem with the destruction of the Japanese fleet, went the destruction of the Japanese merchant fleet by US and uh, British submarines, uh, which would have been decisive as well. Peter Jones, some final thoughts from you. Yes, um, I think the RN contribution in Leyte Gulf set a template for their involvement in major operations for many decades. Um, by this I mean the RN provided a, a task group of major combatants, a task group commander with a full staff, uh, amphibious ships and hydrographic ships supported by a couple of supply ships. This task group was integrated into the US task force uh, with a very high level of interoperability. Um, this was a major achievement for the Australian Naval Squadron. They had experienced such a, a bit of defeat in the Battle of Savo Island just two years earlier. And finally, Greg Swindon. My thoughts on this is that uh, the, the Allied forces also had a bit of luck and they were quite bold. Uh, the uh, action off Samar could have gone the other way if uh, Carita had not broken off the attack and got in amongst the transport ships. Uh, but by that stage of the war, the Japanese were uh, less bold than they had been, uh, more inclined to retain their force. Uh, if Carita had continued on with that action, uh, who knows what might have happened. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Alan Detois, Carl James, Peter Jones, Commander Greg Swindon and Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths. Thank you for joining us, and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.